Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. Rabia Chowdhury is an attorney, social justice activist, and author of the New York Times bestselling book, Adnan's Story. She's also the executive producer of a four-part HBO documentary called The Case Against Adnan Saeed. Rabia is the co-producer and co-host of two podcasts, Undisclosed and The 45th. With nearly 300 million downloads, Undisclosed is the biggest wrongful conviction podcast in the world, which has helped exonerate half a dozen defendants and find new evidence to get over a dozen defendants back in court. Adnan Saeed's story was popularized by the world-famous podcast, Serial. Rabia was the one who brought the story to the host and executive producer of Serial, Sarah Koenig, and she did so with the hopes that journalists could bring new evidence to the case to prove Adnan's innocence. Serial did bring about new evidence, however, the show left out a lot of key details to the story. Adnan is still in prison for a crime that many believe he didn't commit, and Rabia has dedicated her life to proving his innocence. In this episode, we learn how Rabia got involved in the case and why she's so passionate to fight for Adnan. She shares with us what vital details were left out of Serial's story of Adnan's case, as well as what common threads she has seen in countless wrongful conviction cases. We hope this episode starts a conversation around the downfalls of the criminal justice system and inspires action to be taken, especially as a matter of getting involved into local politics. As always, if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it far and wide. And without further ado, it's my pleasure to bring you Rabia Chowdhury. Rabia Chaudhry, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So Rabia, you have an accolade of accomplishments. And so what I would love for you to do is, in your own words, describe what it is you do. At the heart of it, I'm an attorney. I'm still licensed. I take some private clients, uh, but mostly in my attorney capacity, I'm now doing innocence work. And I have for many years, really since law school, because I was in law school when 9-11 happened, I've been a community advocate in many different ways. So that's that's how I see what I do. Yeah, it's really interesting. The way I kind of see your work is you are a bridge and or a translator between civil society and the legal system or the Muslim community and the non-Muslim community, so to speak. So I find you and your work to be this bridge and or this middle ground where you connect and help worlds quite literally better understand each other. Does that resonate with you at all? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I am really thankful that I had the opportunity in my actual career path to have experience in actual legal practice and then to have experience in policy. I worked for six years in D.C. in think tanks and stuff. um, And then to have, you know, grassroots advocacy experience with nonprofit organizations, being the head of a nonprofit, a very close, small local nonprofit. I mean, I've gotten to see, like, you know, people don't realize maybe, but, you know, I'm 46 years old. I have a daughter who's in graduate school. I've been doing this for a long time. (laughs) I've been at it for a long time. So, um, and in this span of like 20 odd years, 25 years, I've gotten to do a lot of things hands-on and see the connections um, and continue to try to make connections between all of these things, including I'm a person of faith and I come from a faith community um, and I continue to try to also 
build bridges between different faith communities uh, and also faith communities and government and, you know, nonprofit sectors. I mean, there are a lot of these gaps that need to be filled. And so I feel like I'm, I've gotten enough experience to be able to do that. I don't always intentionally do that, but it does happen. There's so many places that we could go from this point in the conversation, but I think I'd love to talk to you about the podcast Serial and your role in it. First, can you kind of tell tell us how that, that story came about? How did that actually come to be and who is Adnan to you and how did Sarah come to be? And, you know, and then we'll kind of unpack it from there. It's a story that spans, you know, decades. Um, in 1999, I was in law school and uh, my younger brother was six years younger than me. His name is Saad. And he had a best friend who was Adnan. Adnan him was best friend since they were about 13. But in 1999, my brother was 18, Adnan was 17. And again, I was, I was married. I had a daughter. I was in law school. I lived in a different state, but I visited my parents every weekend. And I do Adnan for a number of years. So I had heard peripherally about this young girl who got who disappeared from a local high school. And as weeks went by, every time I'd visit my parents on the, on the local news on the weekends, they'd show that we're still looking for her. And then the news switched and they found her body, unfortunately. And then one day I was visiting my parents and suddenly they're like, oh, a young man's been arrested. His name is Adnan Musad Sayed. And I just sat up on the sofa like, what? Because they showed his picture and I was like, something, what is happening? And, you know, they live, his family lives on the street, like right down, like in the same suburbs of my parents. So we went over there immediately. I went over with my mother. And from that day forward, I was involved in the sense that I was not an attorney at the time. But this is before 9-11. It's before the Muslim community had a lot of lawyers. There weren't, I didn't even know, I knew one other Muslim who was in law school. I didn't know any Muslim lawyers. None of us did, but I was kind of the closest thing to a Muslim lawyer <laughs> that the community knew. And I knew nothing. And that was the sad thing that I knew nothing. But um, I really was kind of like, a, I, I just was like an advocate, family support, big sister, trying to translate what was happening in the courtroom and with the, with the lawyers to the family. But on the legal front, I had no idea what was happening. Obviously, his lawyers were not going to be, they were, They don't divulge, you know, what's actually happening in legal strategy. I have no idea. And I we just trusted them. They were, you know, we trusted uh, his attorney who was very highly acclaimed at the time. We paid, the community raised over $100,000 to pay her. And um, ultimately, a year later, Adnan was actually convicted. And that came as an utter shock to the community. Um, and it was in the course of this trial that, it became very clear that his religion and ethnicity were a factor. It was like presented like evidence, basically, and that was very shocking to the community. So all these years later, what happened was we had been preparing for this one big appeal. I testified at the hearing, and it didn't go our way. And I knew that the judge was not going to rule in our favor. And so I was really despondent, and I thought, well, this was our last chance. I don't know what to do. His his attorney that we had at the time in 2009, 10, was also like, uh, it seems like this is the end of the road. And then I said, forget it. I need to go to a journalist who can find new evidence, who can do things that lawyers can't do. You know, lawyers have all these ethical constraints. So I just looked for a journalist who had covered the legal scene in Baltimore in 1999, and I found Sarah Koenig. She had written about Adnan's attorney and about some other things. Um, I didn't know at the time she was working now for This American Life. And within a week, she came to visit me. And when you listen to Serial, um, you hear the audio from that first visit, and she took the files, and she was hooked. And that turned into Serial. I had nothing to do with the production of Serial. Every week I listened with everybody else. I had no idea what was going to be in it. Uh, it was the thing that brought global attention to Adnan's case. Thank you for that backstory, Robbie. So let's talk about that. But really quickly, since you're, this last point here, 
you weren't involved in the production of this actual podcast that literally was the talk of the town for for the entire year of, I think, of 2014. So as you were listening to the Serial podcast, how did that kind of make you feel knowing that you were, one, the individual that essentially brought this case to Sarah Koenig and her team, but two, you were learning new things along the way. Like, how did that, how did that kind of impact you? And, and what did you kind of feel during this whole process? It was not pleasant for me. It was not pleasant for Adnan's family, for anybody close to him. It was a very, very difficult time. I actually grew physically quite sick in those few months. Um, it was incredibly stressful because at the end of the day, I did not care what the media product looked like. In fact, I, did, I didn't even know what a podcast was. And the truth is, I didn't care. What I wanted to know is, what did she find? Did she find new evidence? Did she get a witness to talk? What is going to help us in court? I cared about nothing else. The reason people loved Serial is because of the ambiguity. It was because, is he a victim or is he a psychopath? Is, you know, is he innocent or guilty? And they love playing this back and forth and back and forth. But in order to do that... Serial had to construct some of the ambiguity. They had to not tell the story fully at all times. And that was frustrating for me. So I, in order to relieve my frustration, was blogging. I kept, Every week, I would listen to the episode and I would blog all night. Thursday night, I would blog all night and in response to it and say, this is what uh, this is the rest of that story. At the end of the day, it was about getting Adnan another chance. And I just kept waiting until the end. And they were able to bring in Asia McLean, who was the alibi witness, back into the case. And for that, we're ever grateful um, because we were not able to do that. She just she wouldn't talk to us and we didn't know why. But beyond that, it's not like, Sarah, the team really found any new evidence is the truth. But what they opened the door, though. They opened the door wide open to all these other resources and all these other lawyers and investigators and journalists came to us and wanted to help and have been helping ever since. And those people have found new evidence and um, it's made all the difference. Now, that's fascinating, Rabia. So as this podcast kind of gained so much acclaim and it brought a whole bunch of attention to Adnan's case, how did you find yourself being in that place where all of a sudden people wanted to reach out to you and talk to you? Like, how did that kind of transform you or impact you? Well before Serial, you know, again, in my capacity as kind of a community advocate, for years I had been writing and public speaking and I had already developed all these skills that came in very handy after Serial. Um, you know, I had been writing for Time Magazine and like all kinds of <clears throat> really major platforms well before Serial. So I had somewhat of a public profile and I also uh, had a fair level of confidence in terms of writing, responding. I had a good command of the case files. You know, I knew the case inside and out. I knew the evidence, I knew the documents, I knew everything. And the Adnan himself and the family themselves asked me to be the point person for the media. Adnan, when he was arrested... He's the middle of three sons, the middle son. The, his elder brother, Thanvir, who he was very, very close to, really kind of crumbled after his arrest, and he disappeared. He, after like a year or two, disappeared. The family didn't know where he was for years. For years, they couldn't find him because he couldn't. And in many years, he hasn't visited a non-prison because he cannot handle it and process it. And this is not unusual. And his younger brother was a child. He was like 12, I think, when Adnan was arrested. And so for Yusuf, the, the little boy, when Adnan was arrested, it was such big news. And locally, it, his face was all over the papers and in the media. 
Yusuf was harassed and bullied at school. He was kicked out of school after school. Finally, his family sent him to Pakistan to study. And this kid doesn't even know the language. He's never been there. And he spent five, six years, and that was really traumatic for him. So that leaves his parents, his you know, and his father is quite elderly to fend for themselves. Um, and they certainly couldn't handle the media. So by default, it was, it was going to be me. And uh, Adnan asked it, that it be me. I guess the question that I'd like to ask is, what made you feel like it was your sense of responsibility to do so? Like, what was the catalyst for you wanting to step into that space and hold that responsibility? Oh. To this day, like even now, um, I cannot forget the day he was convicted. And that it was that moment that they, the jury, the foreman announced, um, you know, his his uh, guilty um, verdicts and that Adnan turned around and he was like a child. He had turned 18 while he was in prison and he was just skinny and tall, but he just looked like a child and he barely had any facial hair. You know how like boys get the sparse facial hair. And he just turned around and he said, Allah knows I'm innocent. I'm innocent. And that moment is like forever just seared in my heart. And from that moment, you can't walk away um, from something. I couldn't walk away. And for me, the idea that in most cases of exonerations, I've, you know, now that I've become pretty well versed in the world of innocence projects and exonerations, which I wasn't before, it takes an average of 20, 25 years to exonerate a person. And it takes at least one person who doesn't give up, right? And you need one dedicated person. His parents don't have the capacity. They just don't. And who would do it? So the way I look at it is I can say, well, then I did my best. And I guess you're just going to have to die in prison, right? Like that's the alternative. And it's not an alternative. It is absolutely, um, I would never allow that to happen. So whether or not I can get him home, I will never stop trying. Because I will not accept the alternatives of saying, well, oh, well, I'm done trying. I'm sorry. Every time I, re- every time I recall that moment, there's never a time that I don't uh, <laughs> have a little bit of an emotional breakdown because uh, that was the worst moment in these years and all this in this whole case. No, I, I appreciate you getting vulnerable. I think all these hours that I've spent, I've listened to the Serial Podcast twice now, Rabia, and have watched the documentary that you're an executive producer on, on HBO. And the whole time as, as I'm kind of just watching you and better understanding your role in all this, the underlying question for me this entire time was, what exactly was the moment that Rabia felt like she had to put herself in this space and hold that torch going forward, essentially to be the light in the darkness? And so now we know. So I appreciate you sharing that. It's great. So as it pertains to this whole case, I'm really curious to get your perspective as as best as you can kind of share. What exactly are people missing about this case? What are they missing about Adnan's, like as an individual? What are things that people should consider that they're not considering as it pertains to his case? What they need to know, first of all, is if they listen to Serial, you know very, very little of the story. I mean, I'm sorry to tell you, but you know very, very little of the story. Um, Serial told an incredible story. But I'll give you one example. Now, if you're investigating a murder that has very little evidence in it, 
the first place you look for evidence is the body, the autopsy, right? Um, Serial did not spend not even a single episode, but no time at all talking about the autopsy report. And the autopsy report will tell you that there is absolutely no way that Heyman Lee was killed at the time um, that the state says she was killed. She was not buried at the time the state says she was buried. There are lots and lots of missing things in serial. And we ha- and I and I give them grace because they're not criminal defense attorneys. They're not criminal investigators. Sarah Koenig in the first episode says, I don't, I'm not even a criminal investigator. Like I don't even do this journalistically. And I wish they had pulled in people. You know, when she went to speak to the lady from the Innocence Project, there's a reason that Deirdre Enright the minute she looked at Anand's case said, all the red flags of a wrongful conviction are here. It's because she's an expert. She has seen them over and over. And in, in that, in the five years that have gone by, I have seen them over and over. I have worked now on 22 wrongful conviction cases in the last five years. So what I want people to know is that Serial is an incredible story. But if you want to know what really happened, it is really bereft of so many of the facts of the case. For example, you know, for many years I thought Jay did it. And I didn't understand exactly what happened. I didn't understand the dynamics of Baltimore and policing and how the police treated young black men, especially in the 90s. Um, But, you know, the detectives on Adnan's case have been implicated in the wrongful convictions of like four defendants who have now been exonerated, who have brought civil suits against them because they have a pattern of forcing, coercing witnesses, threatening them that if you don't give us, this is, it was reported. And uh, it's been in court. There's civil cases. Ezra Mabel's one of them. And you can easily find this information. And when Sarah Koenig reported about those police officers and she said they were basically good guys doing their work, I remember calling her and saying, Sarah, there are outstanding civil cases for misconduct against these police officers. How could you not report that? These are police officers who over and over again have coerced witnesses to get their conviction. And years later, those witnesses have come forward and said we were threatened. Um, We now know that Jay Wilds was threatened. His attorney told me, and I wrote about this in the book. And so I would say, that if you want to know everything you missed, you can listen to Undisclosed, which is the podcast that I did with two other attorneys. It's very, very deep. It's very detailed. It's like if you really want to get in the weeds. Or you could read the book, which is, I think, a great kind of um, – it just sucks together 20 years of information. And it has letters that Adnan and I have exchanged over the course of 20 years. And also the HBO series is good too. But the book and the HBO series will get you caught up. I also want people to know one more thing. The other thing I want people to know is this in every single wrongful conviction innocence case, you're going to find a similar pattern. No forensic evidence, cops with bad patterns, prosecutorial misconduct, shitty defense attorney. It's like the same. It's a nightmare, but it's the same story over and over. So that's really curious then. I mean, who else could it possibly be given all the stuff that you guys have collected that I've seen in the documentary on HBO and through the, through the podcast? I mean, for all we know, it could be somebody who's already in prison, you know, who's already been convicted of assaulting other women. We have no idea, and there's no way to find out because I don't independently have the power to take the forensic evidence, to take the physical evidence and do. Right now, you know, the DNA testing, there's genetic genealogy, there's so many more tools that we could use to find out who that hair belongs to, who the DNA belongs to, but we don't have the evidence. The state has the evidence. The attorney general has the evidence. We cannot get it. If I could do it myself, I'd do it tomorrow, but they, we have to go to court to try to get it. Um, and that could take 
the last time a defendant did that, it took him six years. It had to fight six years in court to get the state to agree to test the DNA. But at this point, we have forensic evidence that could literally just tell us it's this person. And the attorney general will not test it. Now, what do you think happened in the context of Adan's case? Because it seemed like the the entire trial was going off of Jay's testimony. So how is it that Jay was able to essentially provide all of this so-called information, convince the jury and the judge that Anon was uh, the one who committed this murder? How do you think, like what was happening on the back and the back scenes of all of that? Like help us understand that. You know, what's interesting about Jay is that not only did Anon spend a day in jail for this, Jay has assaulted police officers. He's been caught with drugs. He has you know, physically attacked an ex-wife. He has all these different, all, for a young black man in Baltimore, not to spend a day in prison for all of these different incidences, attacking police officers, you know, people get killed for that. Something else, we always figured there's something else there. So we, we think Jay maybe either is some kind of, he was an informant. He has some broader deal with the police or prosecutors. He le- left the state and that's also unusual, and we think that's because maybe he he might have been an informant. Um, but there's no other explanation for why he was never charged, prosecuted with anything. Um, he never went to trial for anything. It's just they just every time null pros, null pros, null pros means charges dropped. You know, so that he just he never served time for anything. I mean, the photographs of his assault on his wife, I mean, were brutal. Nothing came of it. Um, so I wasn't shocked, but, um, but you know, the, the, the state gets what they want and he gets what he wants. Can you help us better understand, like, Baltimore is an interesting, fascinating city in itself. Can you help us understand at least 1999 and maybe how it's changed throughout the years, but help us understand the racial identity of a place like Baltimore? I can tell you a little bit about the policing culture there, the policing culture, like many other cities like LA, like New York, like Philadelphia, um, very, very corrupt, historically corrupt, going back generations, not just in the police department, but also in the state's attorney's office, prosecutor's office. There's a great book that was just published. It just came out last week. It's called I Got a Monster. You have to read it. You have to read it. I mean, if people have watched The Wire, they kind of know a little bit about it. But this is way beyond The Wire. Um, you know, th- this new book, I Got a Monster, is about the Gun Trace Task Force, which is a special task force in Baltimore. Uh, every member of the task force was arrested a few years ago because for years they were like the biggest criminals in the city themselves. These police officers were themselves stealing from drug dealers, uh, would plant weapons, would plant drugs, were... I mean, just shocking the level of corruption. And they were taking home tens and tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And they were protected by large part um, by the city. We know Freddie Gray was killed in Baltimore. Not a single officer went to prison for murdering Freddie Gray. Keith Davis was a young black man shot in the face by Baltimore police just within a month or two of when Freddie Gray was killed. And because of Freddie Gray's killing, um, nobody heard much about Keith. Keith has been tried now. Evidence was absolutely planted to frame him, and we've covered his case. He's still in prison, and the state's attorney is going to has taken him to trial five times to convict him of a murder that he has nothing to do with, and when when in fact he was shot in the face by police. It's a really 
problematic place. And we're talking about in the 90s, these detectives were boasting that they had like 98% close rates, right? Like they would close 98% of their cases. If you are closing 98% of your cases, something is wrong. You're, you can't tell me you're solving 98% of your murders. Um, the reason they were able to do that was because they were just leaning on people who were poor, who had very little uh, leverage. With Jay, very specifically, they told Jay's father was in prison, his brother was in prison. They told the, the prosecutor who was white told Jay Wiles that I'm going to um, bring charges against you, not in the city, but in the county. The county is white. And I'm going to ask for the death penalty because in 1999, Maryland had the death penalty. So you've got this young 19-year-old black man, Jay Wiles, who's like, I'm going to, he said, because he said, I'm going to charge you with her murder, who was facing murder charges, told he's going to go, you know, face a white jury in Baltimore County and that the state's going to ask for the death penalty, or he can become state's witness against Adnan. What option? Does he really have here? The truth is, Jay has nothing to do with this crime. Jay knows nothing about any of it. Everything Jay knows, he was told by these dirty cops who have been proven to be dirty. And so it's a very dirty police culture, and it's deeply tied to the state's attorney's office. And we need a real revolution in every state's attorney's office across this country. Help us understand here, Rabia, what do you think the path forward is for Anand's case? What do you see happening? Is there another appeal in the process? What are you and Anand and the whole team hopeful for? And how do you think it's going to play out? I mean, you know, it's pretty typical how these cases play out. We've seen this in many different innocence cases where you win an appeal because, we, you know, we won. We won his appeal in the circuit court. The state appealed it. Then we won his appeal at the Court of Appeals, uh, the Court of Special Appeals, and then the state appealed it. They keep appealing it higher and higher, and we expect that. And, of course, if we had lost, we would have appealed it also. And at the very highest court of Maryland, we lost by um, – it was a panel of seven judges. We lost four to three. So we lost by one judge. What I want people to understand in terms of procedure is all of these years and this entire line of appeal going all the way up to the highest court – it's the same issues being presented in front of the court. You can't keep bringing new issues. You are you have the, the same issues you started with 10, 15 years ago are the same issues going all the way up. Once you've exhausted those issues, which it, we have now done, you have to basically look for new issues. So we have a number of strong issues that we can raise on appeal now that we did not have before. And on the basis of those issues, we have a, an expanded legal team. We have a new investigator. We're just going to start all over. The state has unlimited sources because they use our taxpayer dollars. But I'm looking at this very holistically. We are continue to raise money for his um, his legal defense and his attorney fees. And so we have we have an attorney who is working full time on his case, doing absolutely nothing else. It's the only thing this attorney does um, to prepare a new appeal. I'm also, though, very deeply invested in the next time there's elections in Baltimore City and in the Maryland Attorney General's office level, which will be in 2022, because that can make all the difference. You have the right attorney general, the right state's attorney. They can say, listen, we are going to reopen this case or we're going to we're going to test the evidence that you want tested. You know, we're, or we're just going to give him a new trial because all we're really asking for is that he gets a fair trial. He did not get that when he was 17. Um, but the state's too scared to give it to him because they know they'll lose. And if they lose, what what are the implications of that for the state? I mean, if they lose, if we were given a new trial and they actually went to trial and they lost, Adnan's a free man. He's been acquitted. Uh, as simple as that. And that's why they fight it. That's why every time we won an appeal, the state would appeal. They would go higher because they don't want to give that new trial. They know they cannot win. We are dealing with a case with no forensics, nothing tying Adnan to the crime scene. He has an alibi witness and we have a witness who sucks. 
we will lose. So they're desperate to keep the conviction. So, but we're going to keep fighting it. We're just not going away. Um, and I'm going to, I have threatened to run for attorney general if that's what it takes. I don't care. And from what I understand, Heyman Lee's family is just no longer interested in, in, in speaking with anybody. They don't want to be in the spotlight. They just want to kind of quite literally just, oh gosh, I don't want to speak on their behalf, but it almost seems like they want to forget about this thing. Look, I can't imagine a more painful time in their life. I cannot imagine it for anybody. I mean, I have three children. I cannot imagine it. And I assume that when Adnan was convicted to them, that was the closure they needed to move on. And the fact that we keep reopening this wound, reopening this wound, we will not let the scab heal. Um, it can't be easy. So I, I, I understand it. And again, this is very typical. In every almost every case I've worked on, the victim's family is doesn't want, even when we, even in cases where you have a confession from the person who actually did it, the victim's family, because they have been re-victimized, and suddenly they feel this overwhelming sense of shame and guilt that somebody has spent years, maybe decades, in prison for killing their loved one, and they didn't do it. You know, so it just, it's hard. I want to take this moment here and kind of uh, pivot, Rabia, and talk to you about something a little more broad, but still falls in line with the work that you do. I'm kind of curious to know, given the current moment as it pertains to fear of the other, fear of the outsider, fear of black men, brown men, right? So what I'm getting to is Islamophobia. What I'm getting to is Black Lives Matter, and the killing of George Floyd. I'm curious to know, how do you kind of hold this current moment and all of its political divisiveness? And, you know, what do you see to be the path forward? This moment didn't happen in a vacuum. This moment has been building for, you know, hundreds of years. <laughs> for immigrant communities, for Muslim communities in America, it's been building for dozens of years. And we saw it build. Uh, particularly after 9-11 in terms of Islamophobia, you would think that that would be the moment, that after 9-11 would be the moment where there would be the highest levels of Islamophobia, but that's not what happened. What that event did was unleash an entire group of people committed to, to using that moment to foment fear further, to create policy using it, to launch political campaigns and grassroots organizations like Act for America. We saw the Tea Party emerge you know, Donald Trump it didn't happen in a vacuum. None of this did. And uh, and certainly Black Lives Matter has been so long coming that I marvel. I marvel at the resilience and tolerance and patience of Black Americans, uh, at, the, at the abuse that they have endured, um, at the oppression that they have endured. It's incredible. This revolution is long coming. So the way forward, I see, I see it had to spill over. You have to break things for new things to be born. And without social media, I don't know if it would have been possible, but what social media did was it brought it into our laps. We couldn't ignore it. You're seeing it with your own eyes. And suddenly people who will never, in fact, be exposed to police brutality, to the, the school-to-prison pipeline, they'll never be exposed to any of this. Suddenly they're seeing it. It's in their face. It's on their TVs. It's on their phones. And we have a generations of young people now growing up 
with this understanding. So I think we're in a very transformative moment. It is long overdue, and I, I really do think only good can come of it. Um, there are people in this country who are scared of that change. They are <laughs> the Trump supporter. They're, they're scared. They should be scared. Their fear is not made up. They're, 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 they should be scared. They have a reason because, you know, their status quo is long overdue from changing and it needs to change. And so they don't want that to change. I think what they don't realize is that ultimately the change will also be good for them and their future generations and the country that they love. So um, I have a lot of hope, actually, um, coming out of all this. It needed to get to this point. Now, on a micro level, what sort of things need to take place for for this conversation to take place? Like what exactly do you think is necessary for, for people to start better understanding each other? What exactly has to happen? Gosh, I worked for a while like in um, a sector of national security policy that basically what well, the question was, how do you get people to understand each other? <laughs> or how do you get people to at a minimum tolerate each other, but you know, not hate one another? And, um, and it had to do with ideological extremism across a different spectrum of ideologies. And the answer is complicated because the answer is that it doesn't lie in data. You cannot present facts to people and convince them to change their hearts. It doesn't matter. Data doesn't matter. Facts don't matter. So when the facts don't matter, what, where do you go? Um, what the studies suggest is what matters are stories and personal contact. So you got to keep telling the stories in lots of different mediums you have to make the other available through those stories in different different media platforms. I think podcasting is an incredibly powerful tool. Look, I'm a Muslim woman who wears hijab. I, if I walk down the street, I might not be the kind of person everybody feels like, oh, I could kick it with her, right? But when people, people will listen to me for years on my podcast, have no idea what I look like. You know, they, they, they love me, they follow my cats and my kids and my this and that. And suddenly none of that matters anymore to them because I am, no different really as a human being than they are. A lot of people ask, especially when they're frustrated about, for example, the criminal justice system, which has so many aspects of it, you know, from like the bail industry, which is a huge, huge industry. Like the in Maryland, the most powerful political lobby is the bail bondsman. It's crazy. But it's it, it they make so much money off the backs of poor incarcerated people. You've got the prison industrial complex. You have all these different things. People are, where do we start? I promise you, you start with electing the right state's attorney, the right district attorney. Most people will have no idea who their state's attorney is or the district attorney is. If you don't know, you have ceded so much power because that person has more power in the entire system than judges and juries. Start as simple as that. Figure out who it is, what their policies are, how long have they held that office? There are state's attorneys who have been like, oh, I've been the state's attorney for like 20 years. No, nobody should be the state's attorney for 20 years. <laughs> you know, find progressive attorneys, find defense attorneys, civil civil rights attorneys, run them for these offices. Um, it's happening slowly in different parts of the country, but local elections are transformative. They really are. Yeah, Robbie, I really appreciate that insight. And um, what I'd like to do is wrap up here. But before we do, I want to ask um, one final question of you. And it's something that I ask all my guests. And it's this, what's your message for the world? That this is all temporary, you know, nothing remains. So be as good as you can in the little bit of time you have. I love that. Robbie, thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for being the light in the darkness. Thank you so much for having me and for these conversations and for bringing great stories uh, to your listeners. I appreciate it. 
Thank you for joining us on the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced by Dana Drahos. Audio engineering by Joe Genjemi. Marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esor. If you love Stories of Transformation, you can help more people find us by leaving a review and sharing the episodes far and wide. We're grateful for all your support. And on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say thank you. Okay, see you next time.